Good morning. Wow. <laughs> Excited about Super Bowl, I hear. Super Bowl and uh, Groundhog Day, right? So, like, Groundhog Day always confuses me. I never quite know what the shadow means or doesn't mean. I think it's something like if Patrick Mahomes sticks his head out of the huddle, sees a shadow, he gets like an extra six seconds in the pocket today, uh, is what that means. So, We'll see how that all goes. Um, This morning, though, we are in Romans chapter 13, which should be loads of fun because it is a section on uh, believers obeying governing authorities. Sound like fun? Yeah. All right, cool. So let's have all the Democrats on that wall. No, no, don't do that. I'm joking. Uh, You know, you can't hardly go onto the news or on social media without seeing just how politically charged uh, the climate of America is right now. And I'm sure as you watch 10 minutes of news, there's a number of things that you agree with and a number of things that make you angry, no matter what side you fall on. And so we're going to take a look at our reactions as believers according to what Paul has to say in the book of Romans. So, uh, as we've been doing so far this year, the uh, references are going to be up on the screen, but not the whole verse. And so we encourage you to grab uh, your Bible that maybe you brought uh, or from the pew in front of you. Uh, Also, if you have a a Bible on your phone or tablet, open up uh, there to Romans chapter 13. Uh, As I look at this, a Christian interacting with their government and how easy or difficult this is really falls on a very wide spectrum, much having to do with the type of government and how favorable they are to the religion of which you fall under. And, And this has really meant a lot of things to a lot of different people. Uh, throughout time and throughout history, uh, but even today, globally, uh, these verses probably definitely are applied in very different ways. Now, I think that as believers, we often think of our interactions within our political system and government as being somewhat complex. Um, but I, I, I think, and, and this is just Aaron Cahoon talking right now, you know, I think that that has more to do with us being Americans than it does with us having being Christians. Let me explain. I think that as we look at government, we have uh, given many rights, and, uh, and we like to claim those rights and things uh, that we are entitled to. And so when anything seems to be coming against us or our faith, you're infringing on our rights as Americans. When really, when you look at it, and our rights as Christians come across very differently. You see, we are supposed to be submitted as believers. Submitted not only to governing authorities, but to those around us. And so a lot of the conflict that we feel, I think, has more to do with being an American than it does have with being a Christian. Now, I think people also have the wrong idea of what it was like to be a Christian in the first century, at least as we're looking at the book of Romans and the world that he would have been writing into. You see, most uh, of us often think that Rome, who was an occupying people, were, were coming against uh, Christians, and, and that's just not the case. At least when this was written, uh, Rome was actually very much in support of religion. 
within the Israelites, the Jewish people, and then Christians. You see, the Romans didn't differentiate between the Christians and the Israelites whatsoever. You know, they really just thought that the way is what they were called believers, or the way were just kind of a subsect of this greater population of Israelites. And the Romans actually were coming in and not only granting the Israelites rights to live their lives according to their beliefs, but were even militarily willing to protect those rights as they fell under uh, their umbrella of protection. So a lot of the conflict that Christians were feeling in this time was actually coming at them from the Israelites themselves because they were taking their belief system and and adding on to it that Jesus was the fulfillment, the waiting for the Messiah. And so a lot of the conflict within governing systems that the Israelites felt were from a a, a group called uh, the Sanhedrin, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees. They were somewhat... um, Political, like judges or senators, they somewhat acted in that role, but they were also religious rulers and priests and rabbis and teachers. And so they had this pseudo-religious and political stance. And those were largely the people that believers or people of the way were coming in conflict with. Now, that's when Romans was written. That was shortly going to change, and we'll talk about that more later. So, we have this group of Christians who falls under Rome and really has a lot of freedoms there, and yet Paul still writes into this sort of political climate. Chapter 12, I remember uh, the first 11 chapters, Paul is talking to us about the way that we think and the way we think of God, the way that we think of ourselves. In chapter 12, he began to say that our spiritual act of worship is to be living sacrifices, not thinking of ourselves too highly, really dying to our own desires to live for him. Fred Weatherly last week took us through the second half of chapter 12 uh, about how to uh, not repay evil with evil, but to overcome evil by doing good and so many examples that Paul gives there. If you didn't hear it, go online and listen to Fred's message from last week. It was uh, powerful. So verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So here we have pretty simple uh, 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 intro to this section. God's in charge. God's in charge of all of it. We think to other things that Jesus said right before the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and on earth has been granted to me. And then he gives a command. Therefore, because of that, because I have this authority, go making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them, walking with them day by day so that you can teach them everything that I have commanded you and and be together in this process. And that was all built on all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. I think of Jesus right before uh, his, his trial, during his trial, his crucif- before his crucifixion, he's sitting before Pilate. And Pilate is asserting his authority in Jesus' response. He was a man of few words in these hours, but he did say, you would have no power were it not given to you by God. Just a reality check. Just remember, all authority is placed here by God. 
Proverbs chapter 8 says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles and all who govern justly. By me, all authority has been given by God. Therefore, if you are a believer and you are resisting the authorities that have been placed, you're not simply resisting them, but you are resisting God. You are coming against him. Charles Spurgeon, theologian, said this, opposition to divine sovereignty is essentially atheism. Now what that means is this, that God is in control. If God is in control and we don't live like that, we are acting as though there was no God at all. So for us to come against a government that God has put in place governing authorities, assuming in those verses that it is uh, not coming against God himself, is essentially to act as an atheist. And I think we all risk this daily. Continually, we want to forget God's sovereignty, that that he's in control, and we want to take control back. In essence, thinking that there is no God, like he isn't in control, but I could be. And so these verses come against that. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath to the wrongdoer. Simple again. For the most part, under most of these governing authorities, if you don't want uh, uh, to have conflict with them, just fall in line with their rules. They're probably not all that bad. You know, when you do come against them, though, if you're doing wrong, then yeah, you should be afraid because God has placed a sword in his hand. He is an agent of carrying out God's wrath. And I think about this, too. Back in chapter 12, if you skip back just a couple verses, verse 19, Fred walked us through this last week. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But how often do we want to take this back from God? Like that we are gonna protect, not maybe we're gonna gain vengeance for ourselves, but more often than not, it's like we're gonna protect you, God. We're gonna stick up for you. We're gonna stand for you and so that these people know what they're coming against. And I thought of this picture I had come across months ago. Uh, this Jason Momoa who is an actor, he's Aquaman, and, uh, and, and just in front of Jason Momoa is his security guard. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, like Jason Momoa needs that guy to defend him. And yet here we are, and we often will come, except instead of that guy, maybe it should be like a preschooler. We're standing out in front. God, we got, don't, no, God, don't worry about this. I'm going to take it upon myself. And when we resist the authorities that have been placed, God is saying, I have put them in place for these reasons. Romans chapter 13, verse 5, we continue. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, this is where we have a problem. You know, and again, I think this is where we have a problem, especially as Americans. We don't like to be subject to anybody, do we? 
We don't like people telling us what to do. But he says that as a believer, this should be our natural stance. Says that we should be subject to one another. Every one of us should be subject to other believers. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. I mean, this was Jesus' example even. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. We should have a humble stance in our culture as it is. And so he says, you got to do this not only to not incur the wrath of God, but so that you can have a right conscience, so that you can be in a right relationship with God. Because if he's already expecting us to be submitted and to be humble, then our righteousness or being in a right relationship with him has to do with the stance that we take with others. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And I guess this is when I think of these words right here, I really think of like fire and police and so many uh, things that we have that they're here ministers, meaning servants. Not so much ministers like pastors or shepherds to guide you, but servants to protect you. This is why you pay your taxes, so that you can have these kinds of protections. And, and this made a lot of sense to the believers in Rome also, because as they paid their taxes, it was going to have this military protection over them as well, and it was protecting some of their religious rights in that day, uh, where for verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to own taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So this verse gets harder and harder uh, for us, I think, as it continues on. Taxes like, hey, guess what? You're supposed to pay your taxes. Did anybody not know that? Should I make a sign? Like, pay your taxes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, do that. But then it gets more difficult. Give respect where respect is owed. You know, and I love the phrase, uh, with all due respect, because it can mean so many things, you know? Like, I don't respect you at all. So what I'm about to say to you doesn't mean anything when you say that. But God is saying, don't, not the respect that somebody has earned necessarily, although it could be there, but the respect that you should have because I, God, have said that you should have it. So respect to those uh, who respect is due. And then even more difficult, honor to whom honor is due. And sometimes this is about position even more so than it is about the person in that role. And I think we need to remember that. I struggle with this uh, time in and time out to honor, to respect, sometimes the position more so than the person and so he wraps up this section on governing authorities. Now, again, I think that this is somewhat easy, honestly, is when you, for us to follow as believers when you look at it on a global scale and how many believers do not have governments that protect many of their religious rights, in fact, are coming against them. I think throughout history, many believers in most times did not have the benefits that A, the Christians in Rome did at this time, but also that we share at this time. And yet, when you look at some of those other churches and some of those other times, or maybe right now in 2020, in some other parts of the world, the places where governments are coming against them is the very place that the gospel is exploding. 
They say that one in four Christians on the planet live on the African continent. The gospel is exploding there. In China, in Nepal, in communist uh, places, the gospel is exploding. United uh, Arab Emirates, the gospel is exploding in these places. And so sometimes as we pray, don't we often pray, God, allow America to prosper? You know, God, allow the gospel to spread. Well, it could be that those two prayers are actually in conflict with one another. You see, in the rights and the freedoms that we enjoy today, we may not enjoy in the years to come. Let me tell you, about seven years after Paul wrote these words, he was sitting in Corinth, he was writing these words, and, uh, and he's talking about the governing authorities. He knew that they had this kind of relationship with Rome, even though the Sanhedrin was largely coming against the Christians. Seven years later, a fire would start in Rome. And burn much of the city, especially the poor areas in Rome. And many say that Nero himself set that fire. And as it was burning, he comes out and he says, you know who did this? He knew who to pass the blame on. There's this little subsect of people that not only the, is, the Romans didn't care too much about, not even the Israelites liked them all that much. And he says, it was those Christians that set this fire. And in the years to come, Christians would come under persecution. They would be arrested and dragged out. They would be placed on stakes and oil poured over them and lit on fire so that their bodies could light the parties that he had on his grounds. Christians were fed to lions. And the freedoms that they had would come to an end. So I don't know what our world will hold. I doubt we're going to be lit on fire. But I don't know that. We don't know what kind of a world, what kind of freedoms we will have for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our children's lives. And so as we read these verses, they apply one way now, but they apply a whole different way in other parts of the world and may apply to us differently here in another decade or, or, or 20 years or maybe next year. Who knows? So I want to look instead at a couple of different examples from Scripture about the way that people interacted with the governing authorities of their time. First, I want to turn to Luke chapter 20. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 20, we'll start there. So this is Jesus, and this is an example of obedience in Luke 20. Jesus walking and, and being with his disciples. It says that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up. Now, these are the people that are really coming against or, or would come against uh, the church when it starts in Acts. We're even pre-church here in the book of Luke. But it says this, they ask him, tell us by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. I mean, do you guys read the Gospels? I love Jesus. He's all the time just, uh, he doesn't act the way that you think he's going to ask. Ask him a question, questioning of all people, Jesus' authority. And he comes back, let me ask you a question. Uh, it says, now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him then? But if we say from man, then all these people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I 
tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he goes into a parable. He tells a story about wicked tenants and the way that they acted. And you should go home and read it this afternoon, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. But we're going to skip to verse 19. It says this, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived, rightly, by the way, they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, and so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they question his authority, then they're going to give him over to this authority that only exists because he allowed it to exist. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're kind of schmoozing up to him, setting him up. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, which is a coin, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able uh, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus shuts them up with an answer, but his response is this, Look, Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Again, pay your taxes. When you live in the land, follow the laws of that land. This is an example of him being obedient to the laws of the land because at this point in time, following God's laws did not require that they not follow the land's laws. But even more so and on a bigger scale, he says, but give to God what is God's. And to God is worship and honor, and praise, and obedience. Give God all the other parts of your life, but follow the laws of the land. Give them your taxes, and, and do what the law tells you to do. So that's a takeaway for all of us, that we follow the laws of our land. Some of this is about the government. Some of it's also about our bosses and managers or your teachers or administration. It's about our local authorities. It's about our state authorities. It's about military. It's about the police force. It's about our, our nation uh, and the government that's established there. Follow these laws, the laws of the land. Give revenue where revenue is due. Pay taxes where taxes are due. Give respect where respect is due, and honor where honor is due. Even things like uh, uh, voting. Yeah, get out there and vote. You know, you've heard it say, vote your conscience. You know, I disagree with that. Don't vote your conscience. You know what? Sometimes our hearts are broken and, and they see things wrong. You should be voting God's conscience. You should be looking at the heart of God and say, what things uh, are you about, God? And what things break your heart? And then vote in a way that is in support of the things that God's heart is about. Second example is in Acts chapter 5. This is an example of subversion or overthrowing a governmental system or, or the way to come against it to turn it upside down. In Acts chapter 5, uh, let's see, we're going to start in verse 12, and you have believers, and they're, they're out, and they're teaching. Oh, I'm in John. That's why it doesn't make sense. Let's keep going. I was like, what? What is that? I don't even remember that. Okay, good. This is better. 
All right, sweet. Uh, so uh, Acts chapter 5, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. The church has really just been established. And we heard back in chapter 2 about how 2,000 were baptized in one day. But listen what this says. Uh, it says that they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. The people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever, if 2,000 were baptized in one day a few chapters ago, how much more is the way or the gospel spreading in this area? And uh, let's see, verse uh, 15. So they went and even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by that at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That his shadow would bring healing. And evidently they kept doing it. So that must have been what was happening in the time. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest, this is that same group that's been coming against uh, uh, um, the, the, the way, Christians, believers at this time. They rose up, and all who were, were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison's doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. And if you'll see there, the word life is capitalized. This is more than just life. This is about a way of living, about how God was bringing not only abundant life that John 10, Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, but a life that would be eternal. And so he says, go out. Stand in the temple courts and preach this good news of a new life. And I love that an angel of the Lord comes, breaks them out, and sends them right back to what they just got arrested for. And guess what happens in the morning? The people wake up, and they look in the cell, and there's nobody there. And the chief priests, they call in the jailers. They're like, where are they? We put them in jail. And so they go searching. They find them in the temple courts doing just what they had said. Uh, that what the angel had actually said for them to do, and we pick it up in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioning them, saying, we strictly charge you to not teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, when you're faced with a charge from a government, and then on the other hand, you have a charge from an angel of the Lord who was sent with a message for you, guess what you do? Write this down. You follow the message of the angel. None of you are writing this down. You'll probably remember, when faced with this decision and this subversive action, they went back to what the angel had told them to be about. Acts chapter 5, verse 40, we're going to jump forward again. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Did you hear that? I mean, that's so different from our experience, I think, and from what we've had to live, and maybe what we ever have or will have to live. And yet, listen, they left rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple 
And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What a subversive action. And so I think that sometimes we would like to turn our political system upside down. And if you come up with an idea of how to do that, I'm willing to listen. But let me suggest something in the meantime. Pray. Pray. Sometimes we say, I wish I could do more. If we could just get the right people in the right places, guess what? Pray. If you're a news watcher and you watch Fox News all the time and they're bad-mouthing Pelosi and the Democratic Party, guess what? Pray for her. Pray for them. Or maybe you're on MSNBC you know, or, or, or CNN, and they're bad-mouthing Trump and the Republican Party. When you hear those things, pray for them. Pray for them by name. James chapter 5 says that the prayers of the righteous, those in a right relationship with God, are powerful and effective. If you want to turn a government upside down, pray for them. There is power in those words. There is no act more subversive of a government and yet in obedience to Scripture than prayer. And I think we underestimate this too much. Sometimes it takes going against what a government might say. This is what they were facing. And we may face the same things within our lifetime. One last example, Acts chapter 22. This is an example of taking advantage. But, but I mean, taking advantage in all the right ways. And so in Acts chapter 22, we have Paul, who at one point in time was coming against Christians, but then came to know Jesus. And as he's preaching, he also is arrested. Chapter 22, verse 22, he says this. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and, um, and said to him, what are, you about, what, you are, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and, and said to him, tell me, brother, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. And so here he is arrested and being brought in, he was going to be flogged, which was at the end of a, of a whip that was called the scourge. And on the end of this whip was bone and pieces of metal. And many people didn't survive this inquisition by flogging. But they were saying, let's, let's inquire of him in this way so that he'll tell us what he's guilty of. And so as they pre are preparing to whip him, he comes up and it's, I almost feel like he was like, uh, hey, like nudges the centurion. So is, is it legal? you know, to, to beat a citizen of Rome. And so he'd been holding this kind of in his pocket for a while. He's been in prison before, but he's holding on to this until this moment, and they know that as a citizen of Rome, he had protected rights. And he was taking advantage of these rights. And so he asks them this, and what ends up happening is they, they call him out and say, okay, 
You, you do have rights. And so they put him in prison overnight, and then the next day they bring him before the tribunal. They then bring him before uh, the Sanhedrin. Felix, who was the governor, and Felix's wife, at this point in time, Felix, the governor, is hoping that Paul will bribe him because he knows he's done nothing wrong. Hey, if you throw me a couple bucks, I'll send you back out on the streets. But Paul doesn't do that. He sits in prison actually for the next two years until Felix is out of power and another guy, Festus, comes in. He even is able to speak in front of King Agrippa and what he does every time that he's in front of a new group of politicians. He says the good news of Jesus. He talks about the Israelites' past, about how they had waited all this time for the man, the Messiah, to come and he preaches the good news over and over again. You can read about that in the next couple of chapters, but I want to skip to chapter 25, verse 8. This is Festus, the new guy who is in charge. It says this, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Uh, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal on these charges um, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to be brought before the highest court, and so he appeals to Caesar. And they talk amongst themselves, like, can he do this? Is he allowed to do that? Are we, can't we just send him free? Can't we just arrest him? Can't we just beat him? No, he has rights. And so they, he appealed to Caesar, and he says, if you appeal to Caesar, then to Caesar you will go. I actually want to jump back to Acts chapter 9. Remember I said that before Paul believed in Jesus, he was actually persecuting them, coming against them. He had this moment on the road that Jesus uh, blinds him and, and talks to him, and, and Paul comes to believe and understand who Jesus is, that he was the Messiah. And, and God would then go to another guy named Ananias, and that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 13. So he's speaking to Ananias. God is in a vision. He says, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. To carry my name where? To carry my name before the Gentiles. To carry my name before kings. To carry my name before the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, these words right here are actually fulfillment of prophecy that God had spoken to Ananias. He is my chosen instrument. I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. I'm going to send him to the Israelites. I'm going to send him before kings and queens and governors because he is my instrument. And so now Paul, claiming his citizenship, taking advantage in all the right ways of the rights that he has, is sent off to Caesar. And I'm going to just jump to Philippians here. 
Philippians, Paul is talking. I'll just read it for you. You can look it up later. Philippians 1, 12 says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment was for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, when he appealed to Caesar, he got put under Caesar's guard. Eventually, when he was in Rome, the Praetorian Guard. And, and these were Caesar's elite, the best of the best. They had shorter uh, uh, times that they served in the military. They got paid so much more. They were the best of who Caesar had to protect him. And they were put side by side with Paul day in and day out. And guess what Paul did? He shared God's goodness with them over and over again to the point that in Philippians it says, Jesus' name is known throughout the entire imperial guard because of this, what God, and kind of I think of Joseph, you know, who was in prison and, and in all kinds of different circumstances, faced with his brother, says, what you intended for bad, God intended for good. And so he's taking advantage of, this, of his citizenship. And the takeaway for us is this. Take advantage of your citizenship. You see, maybe we're Americans, but actually the Bible says that you are aliens and you're strangers in this land. We are citizens of heaven and saints, and so claim that citizenship. And while we have the freedoms that we do, I just want us to think about the way that we can make an impact for the kingdom on others. We talked about praying. We talked about, you know, giving to Caesar what's Caesar's. But guess what? Sometimes if you give less to Caesar, if you want to give less to Caesar, give more to other things. If you give to charitable organizations, often our tax bill goes down. And so think about giving to the things that are minded on the kingdom. Give to things like uh, the Parenting and Pregnancy Center here in town. Make donations there. You know, if you give to the Humane Society, uh, that's good. You know, that's good. You know, I, I, I'm supportive of the Humane Society. Our animals are from the Humane Society. We always adopt from there. But what about investing in kingdom things? What about adopting things like a place called Rafa House? And Rafa House comes along uh, young ladies and boys who have been sex trafficked, and they give them counseling, and they give them skills to be able to live a life separate from that that they had been stolen into. Give to missionaries. We have serve Hope Coffee out here. Those are people that are ministering to people in Mexico and Guatemala digging wells and building roofs for people that are in need so that they can share the good news. Give less to Caesar by giving more to God's kingdom. We can take advantage of these things that we have at our fingertips. I think of our freedom of speech and so much better. You know, I appreciate that we have the right to sit on a corner with a sign and I'm not against that. You could do that, but how much better to sit in a classroom with a child and to invest in the next generation. How much better to coach a t-ball team or a volleyball team. Or just to be a team grandparent who brings snacks to the games and tells kids that they did a good job. Because maybe their mom and dad don't care enough to come to the games. 
There's so many ways that we can use our freedoms to advance the gospel if we will just consider what they are on social media, the places that we're at. Instead of being known for what we're against, how much better if Christians are known for what we're for, that we're for people, that we're for loving others, taking advantage of these. See, these verses in Romans chapter 13 make it very clear, I think, for us as Americans in in year 2020 on how we are to submit to our our governing authorities, whether that's local and our police station, our local officials, be praying for them, uh, for our state officials, for our government, for military and our president, to be praying for them, to come under them. And yet I think, and I talked with our elders You know, elders are authority within the church. And I said, if you were to lay out a law or two for our people, what would they be? And they responded to me through through Realm. They were on our our, uh, social media presence. And they each responded and they said the same things over and over again. I would tell them to be in God's word. Be in God's word. You know, we've challenged you with Bible reading plan, uh, which if you follow it, there's, there's, are there bookmarks in your pews? Yes, there's there, they're out in the lobby. If you follow that, you'll read the whole Bible this year. But guess what? If four chapters just is too much, pick up your Bible today and read John 1, verses 1 and 2. Be in God's word somehow, uh, intentionally, every day be in God's word. Seek God in prayer. Ask that he would reveal himself to you through his word. You know, it says that the Holy Spirit is given to all of us to be our teacher and our comforter. They said that they would encourage you to be in community with one another. If you're not in a community group, then, then get together with somebody this week for coffee or for, for tea. Just to be together. Thinking about today's uh, uh, learning, if there's something that you think somebody could use, uh, decide who you're going to share it with this week. Maybe it's somebody that doesn't even go to church. They said, I would want them to share what they're learning with somebody else. Our elders said, I love this. One said this, believe what God says about himself. Then another elder said, believe what God says about you. If we could do that, it would change so much. If we saw God rightly and ourselves the way that God sees us, not the way we see ourselves. And the only way you can do that is by being in God's word. He makes it very clear who he is. He makes it very clear how he sees us, not as mess-ups, not as not good enough. He calls us saints. He calls us adopted. He calls us children. So to see ourselves the way God sees us and to believe what God says about himself. Another said, take a Sabbath, rest. As Americans, we're so good at going and going and going and accomplishing and accomplishing, but there's a time just to be to be with God, to be with our family, to be with those who are close to us, to rest in him so that he can recharge you, uh, to send you back out. The last is this, and it's actually kind of where we started, to die to self. This is what being submitted to the government, this is what submitted to being to one another is all about, that it's not about us, that it's about what God wants for our lives, to die to ourselves, to our own desires, so that God, whose desires are so much better than ours, can be put in place there. We're going to take communion now, and as we do, uh, the band's going to come up. We're going to get a couple of elements, uh, crackers.